Welcome back to the Queer Circle Podcast, where queer healers come to the mic to share their journeys and what they tell their younger selves. Today's guest is Sid Yang, a queer, genderqueer non-binary, mixed-race Taiwanese-American Buddhist in Los Angeles, California. Sid is a coach, Reiki master teacher, a group facilitator, writer, and public speaker. Welcome to the Queer Circle, Sid. When I was a kid, my parents were really proud of this idea that all their kids had biblical names, right? And um, I grew up in a very evangelical Christian cult, very intense environment where it was very uh, Bible-centered. And everything revolved around God, around this Christian uh, sense of we'd only exist for God and because of God and all of this stuff. And um, I remember growing up as a kid and being like, I don't think my name's in the Bible. Like I would like search through it and I'm like, I don't find my name. And my parents are like, oh, well, yeah, we kind of messed up. And I was like, okay. And I'm the firstborn, by the way. So the, their whole like plan of like everybody having biblical names, like if they messed up on the first one, like I kind of felt like somehow I won. And um, <clears throat> so they were like, well, when you were born, when you were, your mom was pregnant, um, all the doctors, is like the early seventies, the doctors are like, oh, well the heartbeat, you know, it's definitely a boy. So they, you know, they were convinced because of my heartbeat that I was a boy and I was like, okay, cool. And then I was born and they had this idea that we're going to have a boy. This is great. Our firstborn is going to be a son, you know, very like auspicious. And we're going to name this kid Stephen because that's in the Bible, right? (laughs) I was born and they're like, oh shit, this doesn't look like a boy. So Stephanie, and that's how I got my name. Um, or my given name. And um, I remember hearing that story and as a kid being like, that's so rad. Like somehow I already tricked them into not giving me a name in the Bible because I didn't want a name in the Bible. There was something about that that felt so constraining and so limiting. Even as a kid, I was like, I don't want to be a part of that. Um, And so I was like secretly like, I'm a winner. (laughs) Like I've already undermined um, their biblical notions of who who I'm supposed to be in the world. And I didn't fully understand that until I got much older. And at the same time, there's also all the gender stuff of like, I was, you know, you were supposed to be a boy, but then you're a girl and then you get this name. And then as I'm growing up, I'm like, but I think I'm a boy. So what am I supposed to do with this? And, um, It was this, like my childhood was this, oh, I don't even know how to explain it. Like this perfect storm of gaslighting (laughs) and this perfect storm of being told that how I perceived myself and my body and who I was, was wrong. And so it was like coming at me from my parents, from my family, from like the community, from the church, because we were like, it was, you know, it was a cult. So it was like very much that's all my life was. And this idea of me having any type of agency and being able to define myself, who I was, um, 
was, it just wasn't there, right? Like it just wasn't something that was entertained. And I look back now at my childhood and sometimes I just have to laugh at myself because there was like this, that desire to break free or to be, to be outside of those constraints was so strong that um, when I was in grade school um, for many years, I would argue with my parents for changing my name. And I was like, you know, you should have given me a gender neutral name. <laughs> this is in the seventies, right? And they were like, uh, no, we gave you a good name. And I was like, no, I think you should have given me <laughs> a better name <laughs> that could be like a boy or a girl. Like it doesn't matter. Like, and then it, no one would know. And then it's just, you know, give me something gender neutral. Um, and I look back now and I'm like, wow, my like little kid self was so, so like brilliant, like knowing exactly what I needed. But my parents are like, no, mm -mm. Stephanie's a beautiful name. And I, you know, and then I was like, but no. And so it was this argument that would go over and over around my name. And I'm like, can I change my name? And they're like, no, you can't change your name. <laughs> and so these things, like, I think like there's this, this knowing or this wisdom that we have in our bodies as um, children that doesn't get elevated or fully tapped into often um, because of the fears or um, I use the word, I'll, I'll say ignorance, but that it feels like a really strong word, but maybe that's the word, um, but really fears of adults in our lives. Uh, they're like, we want the world to look this way. So therefore you have to conform to that. And it, and it, by doing that, it limits and squashes um, like young little hearts and it like totally squashed mine. And so I had all of these, these ideas that I would put out there. So I was so excited. And I was like, <laughs> I laugh because I'm just like, I was such like a little punk ass kid. And I was like, but I didn't know I was being subversive. Right. So I, you know, as well as telling my, you know, going through this whole thing for years that I, they needed to change my name and I needed, I needed a gender neutral name. I also had campaigns that I shouldn't have to wear girls clothes anymore that for, for um, back to school, they should just let me buy boys clothes. It's actually more modest than girls clothes, right? Um, so therefore I'm a better Christian and <laughs> I had all these arguments. It's also cheaper, um, that didn't fly. Um, when I was really young, when I first learned about puberty, I told my mom, oh, well, when you hit puberty, then that's when you become an adult or like your body grows into your adult body. So I'm like, I'm going to grow a penis. Right. And that's when I get it. Right. And my mom's like, no. <laughs> and I got into so much trouble for even like naming it. And I look back and I'm like, here's this kid, right. Who was just trying to belong and fit in and find like it's my own place within something that didn't make any sense to me. And it seemed to make sense to everybody else, but not to me. And so I'm like, okay, well then how I internalized that was that I, there was something wrong with me that because I didn't fit into this, like that frame, this world that was constructed around me um, or projected around me even um, that somehow then I had to figure out how to fit into that. 
And so even though my child self had figured out all my gender stuff and all like, I didn't, like figured it all out, right? I was like, I got this. I didn't have words for it. I didn't have like allowing or permission for it. Um, so what ensued was like years of me trying to fit into a more cisnormative, more heteronormative world. And what that caused for me was a lot of grief and a lot of pain and a lot of trauma and a lot of like dissonance in my own body. Um, and for years, <laughs> like many, many years, right? Like I'm still, I'm still healing from those wounds of not know, being, of knowing who I was, but being told I'm not who I know I am, right? And so it's still like in my forties, I'm still like unearthing and peeling back layers and being like, but is this true? Is this not true? Is this did somebody tell me this? Am I, am I wrong? Am I right? And like that learning how to trust what I know. And so a lot of my practice right now is um, going back to my eight-year-old self, my six-year-old self, my 10, 12-year-old self and being like, yo, little one, you knew shit. How did you know that? How do I know that now? Because it has, it's evolved. But it had that knowing that truth hasn't changed, right? Because we're I'm, this is me and that child were the same body, right? <clears throat> Just in very different decades, <laughs> and um, <clears throat> and so I do a lot of that conversation back and forth of like, how do I trust this body now, right? And how do I trust a body that has experienced a lot of trauma? Um, physical trauma, sexual trauma. I've had um, lived with an eating disorder for many, many, many years um, and a lot of emotional abuse. And how do I like wade through all of those pieces and all of that just like junk to see and hear what is me in the midst of all of that. Um, <clears throat> And I think for many years, I didn't think that that me was even there anymore. Um, and when I was in like college and grad school, um, I did a whole lot of drugs <laughs> and just a lot of, yeah, I just did a lot <laughs> of things. <laughs> and a big part of that was trying to disconnect from this, what didn't feel safe and my body didn't feel safe because it was projecting something into the outside world and it didn't make sense to me. And yet there was approval that was coming back because I had longer hair or looked more feminine or I acted a certain way or behaved a certain way um, that there was approval coming back, but it felt there was so much dissonance all the time around who I was supposed to be, where I felt at home and, um, and this way of, you know, doing drugs and 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 sleeping around a lot um, was a way of disconnecting from my body. And even though it was embodied stuff that I was doing, <clears throat> it was it was me dissociating in this way, and that's how I survived for a really long time. Um, and the eating disorder was a big part of that too. And um, I look back, and people, you know, I see in my life now, or like, you know have been like, oh, but that was you. And I was like, no, yo, I was not present. <laughs> I don't remember so much of my childhood, of my adolescence, um, of my young adulthood, uh, because I wasn't present. And it was like, there was this way that 
I just, I just needed to survive. And nobody at that, those times were telling me that, you know, you're okay. Like who you are is okay. In your contradiction, in your confusion, um, in your gender neutralness, whatever, whatever, you know, that is nobody was saying that to me at the time. Everyone was saying, you have to be something else. And so I internalized this story of in order to be loved, I had to be something other than who I am in all the ways. And that became like this, like that driving force in everything I did, in how I showed up in the world and how I participated in, in spaces, how I was in relationship with others, how I was in relationship with myself, um, is that I knew I wanted to be loved. And it was something that like, as a child, I never felt that. Like I never felt that from my parents. I never felt that from the community I was raised in. It was always that just you're a child of God, you know, you're doing everything wrong, just pray more. And I didn't, there was never a sense of like, you're loved. And so like this, that became this, um, like, I don't know, it's like the unending railroad <laughs> tracks or whatever. I'm just like, is love here? Is love here? Is love here? Is love here? Um, and I just kept searching for it. And, you know, there's still parts of me that longing is still there. Right. And I can hold that longing with a lot more tenderness now and know what it is, as opposed to it leading me uh, in all the situations and all in leading all my decisions. I can be in a different relationship with it now. I would say one of the first realizations um, of my queerness was probably um, in the early 80s, I guess. Maybe I was around 10. <clears throat> I don't know, early 80s-ish. And um, and I wouldn't name it, I wouldn't name it then as queerness, um, but I look back now as, as my... <clears throat> I think that's where my queerness evolved out of. And um, we had, it was early eighties. So MTV had, you know, just gotten big with all the, you know, storyline videos like or story videos, right? They were like, great, the music videos. And um, we had, we weren't allowed to watch TV in my parents' house, um, but somehow we had, I don't remember if it was like me and some friends or like some older friends had like figured it out how to like totally bootleg um, cable in our house so I could watch MTV when my parents weren't home. And I was fascinated by all the videos. And there was two groups that just like blew my mind away. And it was one was Culture Club, right? So what George, <clears throat> and then also Duran Duran. And that was kind of like my formative. I was like, this is possible. <laughs> like I can look like this and be like this. There are people in the world who are creative and flamboyant and 
totally like crossing gender spectrums in this way that was just so like it was like I could breathe watching their videos and watching how they moved and how they dressed and and so boy George I would say was probably <laughs> of the culture club days um was my first celebrity crush and I was like who is this being who is so like perfect and it's a boy, but it's not a boy. And it's a girl, but it's not a girl. And everything about Boy George was, um, I was I was just enthralled and magnificent. And I was like, this is who I wanna be. This is who I wanna be with. This is who I'm like drawn to. I want this person to be my friend. Um, and I remember once um, seeing a picture of Boy George out somewhere and I'm like, oh mom, that's Boy George. I wanna be like, I'd be like Boy George and my mom got so upset. I like just pissed her off all the time, I think is like actually the truth. And, um, but it was, it just made sense to me. I mean, he was so beautiful. And like, obviously a person should be a boy and a girl and have long hair and, you know, wear makeup and sing and dance and be super colorful and just be like, fuck all of your expectations of me. Um, and so that was my first crush. And then the second one was Nick Rhodes from uh, Duran Duran, who was like super like femme. And like with that, like, you know, I don't know if like, I, I don't know. I define Nick Rhodes as super femme in Duran Duran early years, but like would wear makeup and just like the way that he would move his body and like everything. I was like, wow that's so attractive. <laughs> and so I'm like, and I look at like where I am now in terms of desire. I'm like, it's not that much, far, not that far away <laughs> from like the same things I'm attracted to now. Um, and definitely more like mask folks with, um, you know, a feminine edge, right? Like that has that, there's a softness to it or a allure or something. I don't know. I'm using weird words all of a sudden, but it just, it's what excites me. And so like when I was a kid, I was like, oh, I can be that. This is so cool. Um, and then the other thing or the other person. So the other person when I was growing up who just like blew my mind in terms of possibility was Wonder Woman. And um, at the time when I was a kid, Wonder Woman was on TV. And so episodes would play like every week and I would um, sneak at the time my grandmother was living with us <clears throat> and staying with us and she had a TV in her, her room. Um, so I would like sneak into her room to watch <laughs> Wonder Woman every week. And um, I just, here was like this woman who was strong, who was like, I'm stronger than men. I can like take out Nazis. I can do all of these things and I don't need anybody. Like I'll need you. And my whole, I had internalized this whole story of Wonder Woman as being independent, as not needing a man, as like somebody who's like, I don't have to get married. Um, all of these things that I wanted to be able to embody. Right. And that was another thing I told my mom when I was like, I don't know, like six or something in kindergarten. And she's like, oh, you'll get married, but I'm like, I'm never getting married. <laughs> and she got really mad. And I'm like, Wonder Woman never got married. So I don't have to get married ever. And, um, and then when I was 
many, many, many years later, I was like, I don't know, my late twenties, I was living with a girlfriend and for, um, one of my birthdays, she bought me the box set of the first season of Wonder Woman. And I was like, this is fucking amazing. And so I started watching all of them. And then all of a sudden I was like, wait, there's a love interest. Who's this guy? Like I had totally like missed that when I was a kid. And I was like, oh, well, that's just boring. And like, it's just, it's, it's so interesting how I can watch something as a kid. What I pulled from it, right, was this idea of like, I don't, I can be, if you're saying I have to be a woman, then I can be a woman who is outside of these societal constraints, who is outside of the rules that you're saying I have to play by. Then that created this possibility for being a woman that I was like, okay, well, how do I be that then? If I have to be a woman, then how do I be that? Um, and yeah, so that was, <laughs> and I find it hilarious now that like all these new Wonder Woman movies are coming out and it's such a different, it feels like it's such a different quality of character, of, uh, um, of presentation of who is a woman. And like, this was that early set, you know, seventies and eighties of you have, you know, that was second wave feminism that was coming out. And like, just in, in this way, that was, it's just very different than how it's presented now. Um, and I feel really grateful that even within the constrained, really um, uh, controlled, like, Christian spaces that I grew up in, that there were these moments and ways that I was somehow able to access information that was outside those uh, those walls, right? That I was able to watch MTV in the 80s. Like, I just feel really grateful for that. <laughs> and then also, um, yeah, being able to, to watch and access early Wonder Woman. And like, sure, that shit's problematic. Like if you go back and watch the old stuff, but it somehow shaped and formed me and gave me possibility that as a child I needed because nothing else was giving it to me. And the Bible wasn't giving it to me. The church wasn't giving it to me. My parents weren't giving it to me. School wasn't giving it to me. Um, and yet here's pop culture that was offering me possibilities around my gender, around my future, around autonomy, around my own body. Um, and this understanding that I can be really strong, that I can be really independent and I can be um, a force of change in the world for other people. And I think, you know, I look at the work that I do now, which is very much around um, healing justice and social justice. And I do a lot of abolition work and work that is about how do we create um, spaces and how do we create societies and political systems where all of our lives actually <clears throat> are considered, are held as sacred um, and are not disposable. And so what is that, what, where did that come from, right? That like desire to be of service um, through this type of work as an organizer, as a healer, as an, you know, as somebody who does a lot of advocacy work, like where did that come from? And I, I look back and often root it into um, that place of that like role modeling that Wonder Woman did. <laughs> Wonder Woman did for me, right? Is like, you can change the world and take down oppressive systems as a person, right? 
But I have all of that. If I can embody that, then how can I be a part of taking down systems that are harming people that are racist and fascist and, you know, harmful and disgusting and all of those things? How can I do that? How can I embody that? And so like that became a piece of how I started to weave forward um, in a world that didn't make any sense to me. Um, and I look, um, <clears throat> I look at, um, you know, there's, I would say, I also think that feminism was a piece of that, um, that as problematic, it's very, second wave feminism is very problematic. Um, and white feminism is also deeply, deeply problematic. Um, but it was, it served for me as a door I could walk through, right? And be like, okay, here's other possibilities. Oh, okay. Clearly have issues around race, let's keep moving. And I would find other doors to go through and other doors to go through and getting to places where like, it, they were entry points, right? Of me getting free. And so I think of like, that, like what were those early places? So Boy George, Nick Rhodes, <laughs> Wonder Woman, I feel like I'm just like, you know, a little pop culture kid, but like, that's what those open doors for me. Um, and to the point that I, I feel like I'm in a place in my healing practice as an energy healer and working specifically with um, BIPOC, queer and trans folks um, around eating disorder recovery and um, self-harm that I get to open doors for folks too. And so that like, as doors were open for me, I get to open doors. And there's still doors that are continuing to be open for me because I'm continuing to walk through and I'm continuing to learn and I'm continuing to get free because freedom and getting free and liberation is not like this, it's not an end point. I'm like, woo, done, <laughs> I got it, I'm here. But it's like, oh, it's a daily practice, right? Like how do we get free? And, um, and I love that we're talking about Wonder Woman because all of a sudden now there's like this I just feel like these waves of appreciation for her as a role model in my life in this way that I hadn't really thought about before this moment um, is that the, the fighting for freedom or that fighting for liberation or the, the organizing towards liberation, it's not, it's not gonna end anytime soon, right? Um, but we have to keep showing up. And that was something like Wonder Woman keeps showing up, right? She would just keep showing up in her like spin, in her like, you know, amazingness, in her like stealthness as Diana, but she could still show up. And so like, I'm, ha I'm just, just really riffing right now, but like I get to keep showing up, right? That's my practice is um, as I'm moving forward and really, becoming more and more and more free and accessing more spaciousness in my practice and my spirituality and my body and my gender and all of the things. That is, I'm getting free, I just get to keep showing up more, which means there's more space for other people to keep showing up in their wholeness and in the, the fullness of who they are. And like, what would that look like, right? And I'm not, maybe this is what you know, Wonder Woman envisioned, but what would it look like if we lived in a world where all of us had that permission and allowing and spaciousness to show up in the fullness of who we are, in our contradiction, in our not knowing, in our excitement and joy and um, 
in our desire. What could that look like if every day we all could be like, I'm here. And there is that all this space for all of that to be present or not, right? We get to choose, but that we have the agency to be that fullness. Um, what would our like relationships look like? What would our communities look like? Um, and that to me is like, how do I keep showing up for that vision? Or how do I keep showing up for that work? And it has to start, you know, as a Buddhist, I practice, I have a sitting practice. And so I sit. So it has to show up in that very personal moment when nobody else is around when I'm sitting, right? And then what happens when I show up in the world in groups as an organizer? How does that spaciousness, that permission, that allowing, um, how does it breathe in those spaces? And in my intimate relationships, like how does it show up there? Um, and so like that gives me a lot of hope and a lot of excitement around what's possible. Um, and I think now, you know, as an adult, still totally, you know, respect and love Wonder Woman and can see all the problematic like things about it and see that there's value. I can hold the both and, right? And hold that multiplicity, hold the complexity because we're not, none of us are perfect right? Or whatever we want to consider perfect, right? We are contradictions. We're human. Like that's what makes us human. And so how do we hold those parts of ourselves, the parts of our worlds that are in conflict, that are in contradiction? Um, do, we, do we do that by pushing aside and ignoring or denying or saying things are wrong? Or do we, how do we hold that, that both and that, um, and I like to think of it as the both and, 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 right? Because it's not a binary. Like there's, there's so much more than just two things. Um, how do we hold that with this gentleness and this tenderness and this care that allows life from that to continue to grow and evolve and sprout forth? Um, how do I hold my heart like that? How do I hold my body like that? Like that, I feel like that's been this practice. Um, and I would say that in this moment, when I, you know, we're at the end of 2020, <laughs> we're reflecting on a really fucked up year. <laughs> and, um, and yet there's this sweetness also for me that has come out of this year of, of in a way being asked to sit with myself in a new way. And I've spent a lot of 2020 physically by myself, like, you know, I live on my own, I have my, my animals, but I spent a lot of time really just by myself. And in that was an invitation to deepen my practice and my healing work around who am I in the world? How am I showing up in the world? Uh, where am I continuing to cause harm to myself, to others, to others I don't know? How can I be accountable to that? And how do I shift and evolve and grow and transform into more of a more of my truth, right? And in doing so, who am I becoming in the world? And how do I, that's that's part of my getting free, right? That's part of a liberatory practice. And so there's been the sweetness of like, oh, I get to fall in love with this person now that. I've been looking all over 
the world, literally, <laughs> in lots of different places and lots of different people to be like, will you love me? Will you love me? Will you tell me I'm good enough? Can I belong there? Can I belong with you? And this last year offered me this gift that I didn't even know I needed of just like, can I give that to myself? That love that I was seeking, that belonging I was seeking as a child, that permission that I was seeking as a child from the adults in my life, right? That it's here all along. It's always been here in my body. The permission has always been here. The allowing has always been here. I just didn't know how to access it before. And something about this year of being able to take this time in all of its pain and discomfort and confusion and not knowing to be able to just sit and be with, okay, I am really lonely. I'm really uncomfortable. I'm really angry. <laughs> like all of those feelings that were like coming up and just bubbling up with a lot of intensity. There was a lot of longing here. Um, and to just be able to sit with it, it was this invitation to go deeper into an understanding of who I am as a sacred being and who I am as a part of this larger divinity that we all exist in and that, you know, as I see it. And um, it's kind of magical that I can come, you know, hear this coming full circle and um, really thinking about um, the permission, you know, a lot of time when we talk about like doing child work um, or inner child work, we're like, it's how do we give that child permission to feel safe or to have their feelings, right? And I feel in many ways where what's happening for me now is that child is being like, yo, you already had it. It's giving me permission to show up in this fullness that, that my child self is like, yeah, it's always been there, right? I didn't have the tools when I was seven or eight to be like, hey, adults, you're wrong, <laughs> but I have it now, right? I can reclaim it. I can refine it or reaccess it um, in my body and bring it into the present moment into this body as it exists now. And I get to show up with all of that and to be in that um, I don't know what's the word, that magnificence <laughs> of being a human being, of being a queer being, of being a trans and non-binary being, of being this being that is in many ways outside of who I'm supposed to be. And yet those are the points where my fullness and my wholeness is magnified. One of the ways that I survived um, was, as I talked about before, was about having an eating disorder. Um, and an eating disorder for me, it was bulimia um, predominantly that showed up. And it gave me a sense of agency and power um, that nothing else in my life was able to give me. And it was a sense of control um, and I would say it's actually, and it was actually more than a sense of control. It was a way of being able to quiet what was happening in my brain. So, 
all of the voices, the anxiety, when I had panic attacks, all the voices of criticism, there's, you know, a lot of voices that I took on as a child were really cruel and mean and um, very diminishing voices. And what bulimia did is it quieted all of that. And that was phenomenal, right? Like I, I needed that. I didn't know any else any other way to do that. Like I tried, like we talked about it, like I did a lot of drugs and slept around and do all of those things. And that didn't quiet it. None of that quieted it the way that bulimia could quiet it. And it became something that I knew was harming me, but I didn't have tools, any other tools in order to be with those feelings or those thoughts. And so it was just, it was my companion. We were like in a relationship, we're doing our thing, you know, it was like very functional. Um, And there was a lot of like, I loved it for what it could offer me, right? And and it wasn't until I think like my late twenties, early thirties, I think early thirties, when I went through a really big breakup and it was with my first girlfriend who like, I was like, oh, so in love with. And we'd been together for like, I don't know, like six years or something. And this was like my love, like my like first, like huge, huge, like real, like love. And we broke up and it like threw my whole life upside down. And it opened up or tapped into a lot of my childhood trauma and a lot of my trauma with my mother and a lot of things that I, I didn't know were there. I'm like, well, they're there, but I'm just, you know, just not dealing with them. They're not just not there, but they all came rushing in. And then what came back so deeply was the bulimia was it like, that became like, like when you open up and let a dam open, then that water that rushes in, it became like that. And it was the first time, like I had lived with it for a really long time. And there had been like, you know, it had been very present, but this time it like just completely knocked me over. And I reached a point in that when I'm like, I don't know what to do. And up until then I'd been pretty good about, I have to figure this out on my own. Like doctors I'd gone to in the past and therapists I'd gone to in the past had been like even more harmful than helpful. And a lot of that stuff was around gender, around race, around body stuff. Um, and so it was just like creating more harm that I was like, okay, well, therapists aren't going to help me. Doctors aren't going to help me. I can't go to a program. Nobody's going to help me because they make it worse. So I have to do this on my own. And then this happened. And I was like, oh, I actually don't know how to deal with this. This was, it was so intense. Um, and I had this moment, um, not to get graphic, but I was in my, I was lying on the floor in my bathroom And I was like, if I don't do something, then I literally am going to die. And is that a choice I want to make? And I had, you know, suicide and suicide, suicidal ideation is something that had shown up in my life throughout. And, um, but it hadn't been present in a while. And then there it was. And I was like, I have to make a choice. And what I realized in that moment was, I can't do this alone. And I think that moment is when like, I look back, like it changed everything. Not right in that moment. Like there was like years after that, it was like really fucking hard. (laughs) But that's where I would say I truly entered uh, like 
my first recovery, right? Process is something has to be different and I have to ask for help. And um, I eventually like found a healer. And I feel like that, you know, there's this way that even though I was raised in this really evangelical Christian space, one of the things that I brought with me out of that was an understanding that I'm connected to divinity, that I'm connected to the divine. And so in my lying on the bathroom floor, there was also a prayer, praying, a prayer that came out of me of like, help me. Like, I, I can't do this alone. I don't know who this is, but help me. Somebody fucking help me. And in that prayer came back, right? Like what came back were the connections and people and, and um, relationships that would then be become like my team of healers that would help me move forward through recovery. And it took time, but that's what moved me forth. And I think it's that moment of, I have nothing. Like literally if I, if I walk in this direction, one more step, I'm going to die. And I knew that like, you know, I don't want to go into details, but that's where I was. And, you know, there was also this trust that there's something bigger than me and more benevolent (laughs) than me, that I am a part of something so much more vast and that I am actually not this isolated being who's disconnected from everybody. And, um, and that led me, so led me to these healers who really guided me and helped move me um, through my recovery. And my recovery eventually, you know, it happened and it, and I moved through it, but it was really because of energy healers, because of um, Buddhist teachers, because of spiritual mentors. Um, it wasn't because of the Western medical system. It was because I was able to find support outside of that space that could hold the complexity of who I was around my race, around my gender, around my sexuality, around my body, my desire, all of those things. And as I was moving through that and out of that, what came forth was, oh, if this, I can't be the only person who needs this path, right? And I can't be the only person who's struggling in all of these intersected ways. And so my recovery means it can't just be for me. My recovery is for so many other people that I don't even know, right? And that became so clear as I was moving through my healing process um, that I'm doing this because of those, those, that connection and that relationship and that, that, that all that is that I'm connected to, if that makes sense. And, um, and I started studying with different energy healers and, you know, we'd get to places where, you know, again, those prayers go out. I'm like, I don't know what to do. (laughs) I don't know what to, I just don't know what to do. Um, And it has become since then, since that, that one day, on that bathroom floor, literally. And that was about, I wanna say that was probably about 15-ish, 16 years ago, maybe a little longer, maybe about 15 years ago, to um, 
that has led me to keep going, right? That like my work is no longer just for me. My, my living in this world is no longer just for me. It became really clear to me that the work I need to do in the world and the work I'm being called to do in the world is spiritual work, it is healing work, it is justice work, it is transformation work. This is liberation work. And it's not just for me. And that to be able to show up for other BIPOC, queer and trans folks who live with eating disorders in their bodies and to be able to say there are paths forward that and paths through that do not negate you where you do not have to negate who you are or parts of yourself in order to access recovery, in order to access wholeness, in order to access healing, like that is, is powerful. When I got those messages from the healers who worked with me that I didn't have to fragment myself or erase parts of me in order to heal, it changed, it changed everything. And all of a sudden it was permission that I was longing for as a kid, that permission to be like, oh, I can be my whole self. The therapist I was working with um, during this time of when I really first started recovery, um, one of the things she said to me, and it's something I'd never heard before. And this was in my, I think I was like about 32, 33, is that um, my bulimia is not wrong. And me having bulimia or living with bulimia does not make me wrong. There's nothing wrong about having an eating disorder. And I remember sitting on the couch in that session and just being like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Wait, what are you talking about? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. And yet my body was like, everything was like loosening up and like exhaling. And like, there was this deep relief in like the cellular structure of my body of saying, I'm not wrong. What? Holy shit. <laughs> and that became the foundation so much of my healing. And like the work that she did with me, which was around harm reduction, which was really around like not allowing this idea that I am who I am is wrong. And so it, it gave me permission to say all the shame that I had accumulated my entire lifetime up to that point, I could set it aside and allow something else to emerge. And that's where my recovery started. And like, so that piece, that message of like, we're not wrong. Our bodies are not wrong. Our transness is not wrong. Our queerness is not wrong. Our racial, how, like how we move through the world as racial beings is not wrong, right? My mixedness is not wrong. And that was huge <laughs> for me to also internalize. Um, like that's liberating. And so for me as a healer now and being able to show up in the world as a spiritual healer, as a politicized healer, as an energy healer who does work within the communities of queer and trans folks and BIPOC communities, like to be able to hold that wisdom and share it forth, right? To be able to say nothing about us is wrong, then what's possible, right? The forms of the forms of self-harm and the behaviors of eating disorders or all and addictions, all of that that shows up doesn't mean that there's something wrong with us. It means that there's something wrong on the outside. 
It means that the worlds we live in, the structures that we're expected to conform to, the systems that are forcing us to fragment and disconnect and like erase ourselves and negate ourselves, that's the problem. It's not who we are and inherently are as human beings. And so that is what I hold. And like, as you know, in my spiritual practice and in my healing practice, I can hold that, 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 that intersection and that truth. And it's not, it's not an easy truth. It's messy, right? We're contradictions. We are all things, right? Um, but we have to be able to hold it for each other is the possibility of we are not wrong. All of who we are is possible. And if all of who we are is possible, then the worlds that we can envision and dream forth that are collective and liberatory and rooted in justice and interdependence, then that becomes possible. And so that's, um, yeah, that's why I show up in the world. <laughs> is because I need that. Like, it's what allows me to breathe um, and has given me permission to breathe at the intersections of who I am in this body. Um, and so, yeah, that's, <laughs> it's a gift. There's one thing that got me through my recovery in particular and continues to fuel me forward is this belief that the impossible is possible. And I wouldn't be here today if I could not dream into what felt and seemed absolutely impossible. And I think about that in terms of abolition work. What seems impossible is the abolition of a police force. But if we can dream forward into that, then it becomes possible. And that feels to me like drinking water every day. That my practice is to keep believing that even if it doesn't seem probable or possible or even likely, <laughs> um, that I have the power within me to move towards making it possible and rendering the impossible possible because I have a breath and I exist and I have energy and I have magic um, and that we can do all of that together and we can change the constructs that creates so much harm and uh, wounding in all of our bodies. Um, so that is possible. Um, so I would share that as that's probably the prayer I breathe with myself every day into out there. <laughs> um, yeah, the impossible is possible. So if I could time travel, and we probably can in some ways, <laughs> and I could go back uh, to my younger child self, I think 
like there would just be awe. Like the first thing that comes to mind is like both of us seeing each other as we like, like enter a space together and just be like, whoa, you're rad, right? Like, I'm, like I can, I feel that I'm looking at my younger self, like you're really cool. And then like my child self seeing me now and being like, wait, this is what we've become. <laughs> this is like who we've become. That's so cool. You finally shaved your head. And like, so like all of those things are like the, like that we're existing for each other in this like magical moment. And I think there'd be two things that I would say. The first one is I would ask my child self, like, what are you thinking about? Tell me everything. Like, I want to, I want to learn. I want to remember what wisdom and creative magnificence was happening in that brain, in that body when I was a child. I want to remember that because I've been over the years, the trauma, the wounding, and all of that, I'm so removed from it. I don't have access to it. And I'm like, I want to remember, like, take me into that magic. Um, and so that would probably be the first thing I would do is like, talk to me about you um, and giving that, like inviting my child self to teach me of who I still don't know yet that I am. That'd be kind of amazing. <laughs> just like, I can feel that in my body. I'm just like, oh, wow. Like, yeah, I want to remember that. I want to remember that magic. Um, and the other thing that I would say to them is I'd probably be really honest and say, you know what? The next many years, decades are going to fucking suck. And they're going to really, really be confusing. And people are gonna disappoint you in a lot of ways. You're gonna disappoint yourself <laughs> in a lot of ways. And there will be moments when you feel like you don't have anywhere else to go or anywhere else to turn and that nobody ever could ever see you or fully embrace you or even love you. And it's gonna be hard. And at the same time, you're gonna survive. And that there will be people along the way and spaces and places along the way that will surprise you. And follow those people, go to those places, lean into those situations, like where you're surprised because that's where you can maintain your magic and find new magic. And so don't run away from the people that surprise you. Go towards them. And I think that's how I'm still surviving now is allowing myself permission to lean into the people and the connections and the places that surprise me. Um, and that as you do this to my younger self, then we get to do that together. 
right? And you get to rewrite what happened these last 30, 40 years. Thank you, Sid, for sharing your journey with us. To learn more about Sid's work or to get in contact with them, visit bluejaguarhealingarts.com or for this and more, go to our website, queercirclepodcast.com. Music from today's episode provided by Purple Fluorite, found wherever music is streamed.